<laughs> Thank you. Please open to the book of John. In uh, preparing for today, <clears throat> one of the problems that you have is uh, when you exposit verse by verse through the Bible, sometimes you get very large sections. And then trying to determine how not to turn that into an hour and a half sermon can be difficult because there's so much you want to say. So there were points where I was trying to determine where it is that we were going to cut this. And, uh, but I'm, I'm, I'm really excited. There's a lot of information here. But to, uh, just to kind of recap before we get back into this, to remind us where we, where we came from, Jesus, as usual, does something very strange, countercultural, and he has to do this. He doesn't do this because he's a contrarian. He has to do this because of the culture. And I didn't mention this last week, but Jesus uh, confronting the culture as it relates to the Sabbath is something he does quite often. As a matter of fact, he does it throughout the Gospels seven different times. He heals uh, uh, on the Sabbath three times. He tells the disciples to pick ears of corn, and he addresses all kinds of issues, constantly pushing up against the religion of the day. And we learned last week that Jesus heals a man, most likely, after being healed from uh, sickness for 38 years. There's no real evidence that the man trusted in Jesus Christ as Savior. Why is it that Jesus would do this, one, on the Sabbath, to this man, and in this context? And finally, we get to the section of our passage today where Jesus reveals his intention behind what he's accomplishing and what he's trying to do. But before we do that, I want to kind of set the, 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 the mindset so we fully understand there's a lot of verses we have to cover, so the best way for me to cover them in larger chunks is to kind of get your mind ready to handle all that Jesus is about to give you. And when my kids were little, I would do this game a lot of dads do, parents do. You put them on the edge of the pool, and what do you do? You reach your arms out and you tell them to jump, and I'll catch you, right? And there's, they laugh and they squirm, and my two older kids, never a problem. They'd get right up to the edge, they'd jump right off. It was fun, and they would, it was like, scoot farther back, scoot farther back, and it was a fun game. Now, my youngest at the time, I can't do this now, she would drown into the bottom of the pool, but my youngest at the time, she was a very little, and she would get you know, to the end, she'd reach her arms out, she'd try and get me to come closer, but never really wanted to jump, take that, take that leap of faith that her dad would actually catch her, so she would walk away and never really enjoy that. Eventually, she learned to jump. And we enjoyed that game. Was the result, the difference, when she finally jumped, was the difference, uh, the difference of, what was the difference between her and her siblings at the time? The biggest difference was between the two of them was, could we say, the quality of her faith or the object of her faith? What was it that she was struggling in? She was struggling in the fact that could I actually catch her that was her fear does dad have the ability to actually do what he's promising me i can see that he's doing it with my siblings but that doesn't mean i trust him to do it with me if she would have focused on the object of her faith which was me trusting what i'm telling her is going to happen the results would have been different or difficulty of would have been different for her she would have jumped earlier You know, Christianity, the primary focus today is the quality of one's faith. It's the quality. How well do they believe? How well do they respond? Their actions. You know, books, sermons, confidence, all designed. Conferences are all designed to help you improve what we'd say the quality of your faith. A better way of saying that is how to have faith in your faith. 
How to have faith in your faith. Our level of spiritual comfort is tied to the evidence of our faith. And this is where a lot of doubt comes from. Because we're not looking at what the object of our faith is, what the promise of our faith is. We're looking at our ability to respond to the object of our faith. And so doubts come in. We doubt our salvation. We doubt God's love for us. We sometimes doubt our election or we doubt uh, in times of trial. We doubt that God hears us when we pray. That's a big one. We sometimes doubt that God promises will actually come to pass. And we sometimes doubt that God is really working all things together for good. It's hard to see that in our world. But does our doubt change God's ability to be God is the question. Will God be limited by the quality of your faith? Does my doubter's doubt in my ability to catch her change my ability? Yes or no? No, it does not. Does our faithfulness change God's ability to be God? To save those who live by faith? No. Everything in Christianity today points towards the opposite of what it should, which is the, towards Christian duty, the interior of the Christian life. We focus on the obedience of the believer. Are we doing enough to prove we are truly saved? That's pointing towards faithfulness. Are we reading and praying enough? Are we repenting enough? Are we sharing the gospel enough? Are we fighting sin enough? Is God not blessing me because I'm not trying hard enough? And all of these questions point toward the quality of your faith. If you can improve yourself, you will increase your status before God. That's quality versus object. If, uh, if the quality of my faith is strong enough, if I believe hard enough, he will then save, sanctify, bless me, and keep me safe. When I'm not safe, it's because of my own lack of faith. But in contrast to what we hear, the number one concern of the Father is where you place your faith in the object of your faith. You hear many people say today that it's not enough simply to have faith. Well, I agree with them. It's not simply enough to have faith. But they don't mean it in the way I do. They want a level of obedience to some sort of legalistic practices to find assurance before God. You can't say you just believe. You have to prove that you do. What I mean by it is that it's the object of your faith that saves you. God doesn't save those who simply have faith, but those who have faith in the Son of the Messiah. There are a lot of people who have faith, and they demonstrate their faith, but what they have faith in is not what requires, is what is required by the Father for salvation. In our section today in John, Jesus exposes the same problem with the Jews. An issue of their object of faith versus the quality of their faith. Jesus tells the Jews that they do not have salvation because of two reasons. Now there's a large section, so I'm going to sum it down and then we're going to, we'll actually go through all the verses. We'll have to go through them in large sections. But Jesus sums it up in two reasons. This is why the, you don't have salvation. They sought salvation through the quality of their faith. That's what he ends up telling them. And number two, they missed the point of the Old Testament, which the old point of the Old Testament was Jesus being the object of their faith. So everything that Jesus said is about how men are pulled away from believing in him and in almost anything else. The most important effort 
you could ever have in life, according to Jesus, is believing in himself as God who saves sinners by faith alone. Nothing is more important in this life than that truth. Not your marriage, not your job, not your country, not your kids. The most important part about life is faith in Jesus Christ. Your entire existence depends upon it. And what do we do with it? What do we do with the fact that living by faith in Christ is the most important part of our life? We treat it often, in my opinion, as a rewards card. I've got my card. I enjoy its benefits. Who needs to read the small prints? I get my free drink at the end, so why worry about the details? Just make sure I get what I, what I say I'm going to get. But Jesus didn't see his purpose of life in this way. It's so flippant, easy. In essence, Jesus is not what we do on Sunday. But for many, it does sound something like this. Give me a good story. It's a motivation to be a good person and don't bore me with the details. That's for snobby seminary professors who take themselves too serious. I want practical teaching, teaching that will help me live a better life. I want to know how to improve the quality of my faith. Really, we want to be in control of our destiny instead of trusting in someone else to be in control of it. When we lose sight of the object of our faith, which is Christ, we naturally, it's natural for us to turn our attention towards ourselves. Every religion that rejects the gospel makes the individual their primary means of salvation and transformation. Look at every other religion that's even similar to Christianity. The individual is the primary method by which they are saved. So this in mind, I want us to read the words of Jesus this morning and pay close attention to what he is revealing about the religion of the Jews. We will see in the first part, Jesus exposed that they had missed the object of their faith and are looking for salvation in the quality of their faith. I mean, real quick, before we read through the whole thing, just look at verses 39 and 40. This is where he, his midway conclusion. He says, you search the scriptures that because, because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Jesus is accusing them of placing their faith in their faithfulness. You search the scriptures because in them you think you have life. Instead of the object of their faith, which he says, I am the object. I am the Savior. They believe that because they spent so much time studying the scriptures and seeking to obey them, they would have salvation from the Father. That's what he's accusing them of. Jesus is literally accusing people of reading the Bible and finding salvation in reading the Bible. Which somewhat sounds familiar to modern Christianity. In their attempts to save themselves, they missed the point of what they were reading. That Jesus is the only way of salvation. That's what he's saying. You have more faith in your faithfulness to the scripture than you do the object of the scripture, which is Jesus. So they read thousands of pages that covered nearly 4,000 years of narrative about Jesus and they missed the point. The very book that condemns them, they found salvation in. Now let's go back and start at verse 19. 
And Jesus will explain what he means of how they missed it. What they should have concluded is what Jesus gives us here. Verse 19. So Jesus says to them, this is just after they concluded that he's a heretic and they want to kill him. Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. Just to remind you, earlier he made himself equal with the father. So he's just pouring on the hot sauce. He's going to spice it up, make it even harder for them to understand. For as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he wills. He's making himself equal with God. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. They thought themselves only to be judged by God. And Jesus just said, God's handed me that authority. I'm the one that judges you. That all may honor honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life. In himself, Jesus is claiming the same attributes as the Father. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in their tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own as I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just. Because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. Now he's going to start pointing to the very thing they're missing. So he's saying, listen, don't trust me on my own words. There is another who bears witness about me. I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man... But I say these things that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, healing this man, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. He now exposes why they have rejected him. You search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Clearly the Jews loved and trusted the Father. They were monotheist, meaning that they believed in one God. They were protecting God the Father. If Jesus is claiming to be God, now there's two gods in their minds. They're not quite understanding how the Trinity works here. And so they are rightfully angry. For anyone to claim to be God should have been stoned to death. 
So their anger was in the right place. There were, Jesus isn't the first to claim to be God. There were others. But they missed the sign. That's Jesus' point. You've read the Scriptures. You should have seen when I showed up on the scene that I am God and you've missed it. Therefore, you don't believe. Jesus is telling them in every way, through testimony, through miracles, through birth, in power, in authority, He is God. And the nature of by which He is the Son is equal with the Father. Everything. Judgment, power, authority, gifts, um, life. Everything is equal with the Father. He's not lesser than. He's subordinate to, which we'll talk about later. It means that He's underneath the will of God or the will of the Father. But He's equal. Through John the Baptist, miracles, all of this was given as a gift for the people of Israel to see that Jesus is the Savior, and yet they rejected him. This example from Jesus that when you focus on the quality of faith, you will always look past the object. That's the major problem throughout the Old Testament and New Testament. It's constantly focusing on what we must do, the quality of your faith. For years, Christians have looked past Jesus in the Bible, for who true Jesus truly is. It's not very interesting to them. For example, they want to see Jesus as, as an image, as a person, or as an example to follow. What would Jesus do is a prime example. We look to Jesus not for who he is on our behalf, but as an example for us to follow. We are less concerned with who Jesus is more and, and, and we are more interested in the example he's left for us to do. This is why there's so many books written about Jesus' leadership style and how Jesus handled people and talked to people. It's a moralistic teacher and not a God who saves sinners. Or, to be fair, they believe in Jesus as the Savior, but that's as far as it goes. Now we need to focus in on Jesus as the moralistic teacher after we've come to Jesus. And this is dangerous from many different levels. The extreme is very similar to our passage this morning. They rejected the deity of Jesus. So it's not only that they are rejecting the full scope of who Christ is, but they rejected Jesus for who he is. You know, 300 years later, this is still an issue. It's called Arianism. Now, during the third century, there was a man named Arius who taught that Jesus was indeed the Son of God, he embraced that, but was a created being. Jesus was not equal with the Father, and that he was not eternal. He was subordinate to him. And Arius would use proof texts like John 5 as an example. Uh, ironic as it is. Verse 19, So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise, saying that the Father has the ultimate authority. The Son is subordinate underneath him. Therefore, he must be lesser. Verse 26, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. His life, his gift, everything is given from the Father. Missing what Jesus is saying. So Arius, as did the Jews, missed the point of Scripture and introduced a doctrine that led people away from the Gospel. Just 300 years after John wrote this. And in 325 AD, Arianism was deemed a heresy. 
And all mainstream branches of Christianity now see that as being heretical. Now you may ask, why is this important? I mean, that was 1,700 years ago. Why does that matter today? Because this teaching is still being taught today. And most people just don't know it. Because they're more concerned about the quality of our faith, the emphasis becomes on what we do and not on the person of Jesus. The person of Jesus is not protected. And because it's not protected, heresy flourishes. And because heresy flourishes, it pulls people away from the, from the gospel. Here's an example. Let me read off to you some people who still believe in the Arian doctrine. Muslims, Jews, Mormons, Jehovah's Witness, Unitarian, Universalists, if they believe what the church teaches them, they deny that Jesus is equal with the Father, that Jesus is deity, that Jesus is God. Every single one of these religions believe in Jesus. They have faith in Jesus. If you were to walk up and ask a Mormon, do you believe in Jesus? They would say, yes. Do you believe that Jesus died on the cross for sinners? Yes. Do you believe that having faith in Jesus would save you? Yes. But according to Jesus, they are still under judgment. Do you guys remember in John 2, when John tells us that Jesus rejected the people who believed in Jesus? You remember that? He said, why? Because they did not believe in me as Messiah. They believed in my ability. They believed in my gift. They clearly believed that I was a prophet. They did not believe I was Savior. We are warned that Satan is the great deceiver, the father of all lies. What is a lie? How do you define a lie? Anything that wavers 1% from the truth, right? doesn't take much to be a lie as long as it's just a little bit off. And the best lies are what? A little bit off. Satan doesn't need us to believe something completely different. He doesn't need us to believe in a whole other religion. Now there are, uh, that, that is a problem throughout the Old Testament. False gods completely pulling Israel in all different kinds of directions. But not so much today. We don't struggle with false idols or idols. Millions of people claim to follow Jesus and yet will be judged for their sins. Why? Because they have a little detail that's off, that's been changed. And it's changed just a little bit. They don't believe that Jesus is God. But yet they have faith. And they have a strong faith. Why was Jesus telling the Jews that they would be judged for their sins? Because they were rejecting him as Messiah as being God, as being equal with the Father. That's very important to understand. These people were devout followers of God, and yet God says, you will be judged. This is why every week I want to lead us into the Bible to see the object of your faith. To know who He is. The greatest thing I could ever give you is a clear vision of the object of your faith. Who it is that you are believing in. Not just faith, not just the quality of your faith, but who it is that you are trusting in. Why he is able to save you, sanctify you, and ultimately one day glorify you. 
According to Jesus, the purpose of the Bible is not what you must do to earn God's salvation, but who Christ is and what he has done for you. That's his point. So if Jesus is not God, you have no salvation because Jesus was just another man who simply died. He had large following at one point, but his death would be meaningless to your judgment before God. It's sad, though. Our, our churches are filled with weak theology. They're experts, as Byron says, at missing the point. And I'm not here just to be critical. I just want to expose the problem, to, to warn and protect our own hearts. They spend hours filling, finding ways to cleverly entice people to live a better life, all the while missing the very point of the Bible that they read. This is what Jesus says. You read and obey and yet you don't have life because you missed the point. If the conclusion of scripture is how to improve your life, you have spent time on your faithfulness to warrant you nothing. We live in bondage to ourselves, our doubt, our legalism, our sins because we have lost sight of the object of our faith. Who it is that does the work. You know, people have criticized those of us who believe that the Bible is about God redeeming sinners. That's the whole purpose of the Bible. It's not God's handbook for Christians. The Bible is about Jesus Christ as Redeemer. The story of how God redeems sinners. And if you take the life of David and look for examples for Christians to follow, you are actually doing the very thing Jesus accused the Jews of doing. You are looking at the Scriptures for your salvation in them. You know, I had to personally go through my library and empty out a lot of books to make room for new books. Books that have been given to me, books that I have purchased. Because all they taught me was how to be like David, Daniel, and Nehemiah. They were not leading me to a greater faith in Jesus, the object of my faith. They were leading me to have a greater faith in my obedience, in my faithfulness, in the quality of my faith. In essence, they missed the point of the Bible. And one of the main reasons I make this argument is based upon Jesus, an illustration here found in John 5, through the rest of Jesus' thoughts. So everything I just said, Jesus is going to use this as an example for the Jews. Read it, verse 41. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him, meaning his own testimony. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and not seek the glory that comes from the only God? They were praising each other for what they had accomplished, for their obedience, for how much time they had spent in the Scripture. They were giving each other pats on the back, and yet God says, I come with the testimony of God, and you reject me. The glory of God. So they found their approval not from God, but from each other. And Jesus condemns them for that, 45. Do not think I will accuse you to the Father. There was one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. Moses in the law was seen as a representative for the Jews before God. Constantly going before God and pleading on their behalf to save them, to protect them, to forgive them. 
So truly, Moses' words would be safe to follow, for he was the advocate. And what does Jesus conclude for them? He says, the very one you are placing your hope on is the one who is accusing you. Verse 46. He includes with this statement. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? The very point of the Old Testament, according to Jesus, is Jesus. Jesus told the Jews that if they read Moses and did not conclude that Moses is writing about Jesus, that Jesus is the Son of God, everything that Jesus just said, that Jesus is the Messiah, the salvation is found in Jesus alone by faith, believing in Him. He says, you missed the point of what, Je- of what Moses was writing in. The man that you trust, you've missed it. And it is fascinating, the majority of us do spend our time in the New Testament. I think we've been trained in this way. If we read the Old Testament, it's not really to see the glory of the shadow of Christ. It's, you know, we kind of love the excitement, which there's a lot of excitement in the Old Testament. Or we're constantly looking for character sketches for us to follow. But once you kind of understand that we live by faith in the Son of God, the Old Testament becomes awkward for us, hard for us to embrace. But twice now, Jesus has pointed to the mishandling of God's word. Just to remind us, he says, finding salvation in the acts of reading and obeying the word of God. Well, that's typically how the Old Testament is handled. We look at examples of how David or whoever else does something, and we say, yes, I need to have that kind of faith. And we encourage someone to increase the quality of their faith. And Jesus points out that they have missed the point, which the point is, Jesus. Let's go back to the introduction of the book of John when we started talking about John. All of this, and it's helpful. John's writing all of this to remind us of one truth that we might believe. We might believe. It makes sense now. John is showing Jesus display not only his power but his nature. And all of that is so that we can look at Jesus Christ and say, yes, he is the point. He is the object. It's interesting, John does not say, I write all these things so that you may obey. We are to obey. And there's warnings against those who don't. But what's interesting is that that's not the point, not only of the Bible, but not only of John's book. John is constantly pointing us back to the object of our faith. He keeps telling us about Jesus and how people interact with Jesus by faith or not by faith. I believe as a church, and I'm thankful that the elders of our church have a clear vision of who Jesus is. What saves us in the end is the object of our faith, not the quality of our faith. There are Mormons who have more faith than most Christians that I know, if you're going to look at it in the quality. And yet, they will never be saved from their sins. They obey more than anyone that I know, and yet they live in judgment. You know, Satan's one mission in life is to remove our faith off of Jesus 
just enough. Now, for believers, it will never look so obvious as like another God or other religions. So, for those of us who are truly the children of God, we have no fear of losing our salvation. Those who are redeemed underneath the blood of Christ, we have the full assurance that nothing can pluck us out of the hand of God. Yet, Satan is still interested in you. And the way in which she's described as being interested in you is to get you distracted off of what saved you. Because if you're distracted off of what saved you, you're going to be more worried about saving yourself than you are sharing the message. And what are we called to do as children? Share the message. Here's a great example of this. Turn over to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 1. Paul is dealing with this. And he even uses the language of witchcraft, which is attributed to Satan. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed and crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Do you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supply the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith are the sons of of Abraham. Satan loves to distract believers away from Christ and faith in Christ alone. That's Paul's point. You've moved from trusting in Jesus Christ alone to moving into trusting in Jesus and the law. The quality of your faith. The church finds all kinds of ways to distract itself away from its purpose. And I think Satan has done a good job in doing that. And we must, as the Bible warns, be on the lookout for this kind of teaching that can creep into the church. You know, Paul says, "Be seeking whom Satan seeks whom he may devour. It's hard for our minds to comprehend that. But I think it is, if he can, if he can diminish the faith that we have in Christ, he's won. That's what he's saying, is beware of something that comes in and will pull your faith off of Jesus. The Apostle Paul, oh, sorry, the Apostle Peter closes his second letter to the church, and this is what he tells them. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. He's worried about immorality in the church, sin. What's his conclusion? Does he give them law? No, what does he say? But grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, to Him be the glory and forever, to the day of eternity. The conclusion is, continue to focus on your object of your faith, the person of Jesus Christ. Peter points to the sinfulness of this world and leads us away through the object of our faith. And preparing for this, and this is kind of why I decided I have got, I'm going to cut it into multiple series. We're going to take a small break from John so that we can actually go back and interact with what Jesus is pointing out as the problem. He points to Moses and said, you should have seen me and Moses. 
My question is, how many of us have read Moses and have seen Christ? I think our minds have been trained the same way that the Jewish mind was trained to read Scripture in the way in which we can improve the quality of our faith. I know that if I read this, that this will happen. But we don't read it to see Jesus. We read it so that something will happen. We read it so that we will improve our, our, our quality of life, improve our minds, uh, make us feel more spiritual, make us uh, have a blessing from God. There's, and we even can make it sound spiritual, that there's power in the Word of God. There's power in reading. Let me tell you what, Jesus talked to people who devoured Scripture more than you will ever be capable of in the original language. And he says, all of that time that you spent in there, worthless, because it still judges you. The very person you are putting your faith in and trusting in, which is Moses' words, condemns you before God. So maybe we should go back and learn how to read the Old Testament, is my point. So what we're going to do for the next few weeks is go through and look at the shadows of the Savior. Who is it that Moses really is pointing to? And Maybe, hopefully... We, as a congregation, will learn to engage the Word of God to see the glory of Jesus Christ so our faith in Jesus increases and our faith in ourself decreases. That we don't run after increasing the quality of our faith, making sure that we're more faithful to God, but we see how faithful God is to us through Jesus Christ and we trust in that and from that we respond. So if you think I'm excited now, you should wait for that series. <laughs> I'm really excited about this. I've been waiting for John 5 for a while. I've been waiting for that verse for a while. And, we're, and next week we're going to even look at where Jesus says this multiple times to multiple different people. Saying, you, if you would have understood what Moses was saying, he's talking about me. He's talking about me. So here's what's encouraging to me, and hopefully you find encouragement, is that if you look at this section of your Bible, majority of your Bible, which is the Old Testament, that you spend the least amount of time in, we're about to unlock it so that when you spend time in all of the Bible, you walk away with faith in Christ because you actually understand now that the book is about Him. It's not about how to make yourself more faithful. It's not how to make yourself better. It's not how to earn favor with God. We love reading the Proverbs. Make us wise. Wisdom. God blesses wisdom. I want wisdom. We read Proverbs. Proverbs is a great book, but we'll talk about what is the purpose of Proverbs? Ecclesiastes, Psalms. What is the purpose of all of those? They have great purposes. And women, aren't you so thankful that I didn't give you a Proverbs 31 today? On how to be a perfect mom? Mm -hmm. Amen. That's right. (laughs) Well, men, let's get ready for the table. And as we prepare for the table... Every week I am convinced, the more I look at Christ, that if Jesus is the object of my faith, if He is what convinces me I am secure and safe with God, then I need to know as much as I can possibly know about Him. The moment that doubt or fatigue, or even put it this way, the moment that sin creeps into my life, sin creeps into my life because I have lost sight of the object of my faith. The study of the person of Christ, or we would say 
the dangerous word in modern Christianity, theology. Theology is stuffy. It scares people out of church. We need more practicality. The most practical thing I could ever do for you is to give you a theology of the cross, of Jesus Christ. Because in the end, that's what truly sustains you before him. It's what gives you joy. It gives you strength to fight. It gives you hope. It gives you, what I would say, a real reality. The Jews didn't live in reality. They had created a sub-reality. That reality was, I perform, God saves. But the reality that Jesus creates is that I performed, I save. So we look to his work that's been done. Amen. Father, we thank you as we remind ourselves once again at the table and how this never gets old because we constantly be reminded that it is through faith alone you save us. We can rest in faith alone, not in our faith, not in our faithfulness, but in the object of our faith, which is Jesus Christ, your son. Amen.